0: Mighty
1: Littles Podcast. Hi everyone. This is Anna from the Mighty Littles Podcast. And I'm Karen from the Messy Mama Podcast. And we are super excited to bring you this joint podcast in honor of NICU Awareness Month.
0: I think it's gonna be really cool because and you and I have had so many really great conversations, but I think this is gonna be really fun because Our listeners are going to get to hear all of the same information coming from you, the neonatologist, and then me having a totally different experience as a mom who has been in the NICU two times. So, this conversation is going to be really fun.
1: Yeah, I think so. I think the NICU is such a special place in the hospital. It is the unit in the hospital where we take care of sick and premature babies. And it's very special to my heart because I think it's such a wonderful place. And I know that it can be really, really scary for moms when they first mm-hmm. enter the NICU.
0: So it's both special and scary. For me and from our family standpoint, is it was a place that we had heard of, but it seemed like such a distant thing. Like the thought of us being in the NICU never even crossed our minds until I went into preterm labor. And so it kind of went from this really terrifying place to now I've gotten where my youngest is almost, she's a year and a half, and now it's become such a special place. So I've had that transformation of, holy crap, this is the scariest place, I don't want to be here, to now we love going back to visit, and it is such an incredibly special place for us.
1: Right, and I think that's the story for a lot of parents, where either you are expecting or aren't expecting to be in the NICU, You're not entirely Mm -hmm. sure what to expect. Some premature babies are in the NICU or some babies that are premature are in the NICU, but some babies that are in the NICU are term babies. And I don't think people think about the fact that there are big babies in the NICU. They actually make up about 50% of our babies.
0: Yeah. And I think like I've had so many conversations with moms and the amount that... Um, end up being in the NICU because of prematurity without having any idea that that was going to be their journey. It was really eye opening for me. And as a mom, I always used to just think that it was um, kids who were born addicted to drugs or moms who, you know, got in a car accident and that's why they went into preterm labor. I didn't know that there are so many other reasons that kids are in the NICU.
1: Yeah, I mean, it's really just endless number of reasons that babies are in the NICU. When you take all comers, there's too many reasons to list out. But Mm -hmm. what we're here to talk about today is regardless of why you end up in the NICU or why your baby ends up in the NICU, there are kind of a collection of our top 10 master list of things that I think will be really important for you to know for... Having the NICU be a little bit less scary and a, and a little bit smoother of a journey, even though it's not where we would choose to
0: be. Exactly. And I think even for those of you who maybe never will end up in the NICU, I always love from my standpoint, educating because none of my friends had experience with the NICU. And so when my family, when we ended up in the NICU with our oldest, my friends didn't really know how to react. And so I come from such a place of, okay, let's educate so that if you do have a friend or a family member end up being in the NICU and having a NICU stay, how can you support them? So hopefully you get a little bit of knowledge so that if that does happen, then you feel a little bit more well-equipped to help uh, your friends or family through it.
1: Yeah. I think that's a really good point, Taryn, because 10% of babies that are born will need some degree of help with a NICU stay. So even if it's not you, it very well likely could be (laughs) one of your friends. And I think when people are going through situations that are really, really difficult and you don't really know what to say or how to help, just a little bit of education can go a long way to be super supportive for those friends and
0: family. Yeah, exactly. 100%. OK,
1: so why don't I start off with my with our number one? Sure. OK, so number for, one, number one is going to be to know the players in the NICU. I think when you're in the NICU and you think about, well, I'm going to have my doctor and then I'm going to have the nurse. But there's a lot more than that. So you have the mm-hmm. attending doctor. That's the lead doctor, the neonatologist. And if you're at a teaching hospital, you can have a fellow who's finished residency, you can have a resident who's in their residency, you can have an intern who's in the first year of residency, and you can have medical students. So nurses, respiratory therapist, physical therapist, occupational therapist, the social workers,
0: all the rest of the support team that's there to help the babies do well in the NICU. And I think from, um, Like from a mom standpoint, I remember the first time we knocked, we walked in or when we first had our rounds and just being so overwhelmed by the amount of people that were standing there. But for me, one of the really big things was figuring out who did what so that I felt that gave me a little bit more confidence in asking questions when I didn't just feel like, okay, I don't even know who these people are. So I'm just not even going to say anything.
1: Yeah, and I mean, you should always feel comfortable saying something. Who do you think you interacted with the most during your NICU stay?
0: Um, For sure, the nurse. Like, for sure, the nurses. But it's actually interesting, and I've talked about this on other podcast episodes that I've done. It was actually our RT, like the respiratory therapist. She was the first one who... Just looked at me, and she's the most incredible woman. She's now a good friend of mine. And she just said, Do you have questions? Like, can I help you with anything? Are you okay? And I just remember that took such a weight off of my chest because I was like, yes, she was giving me permission to really just like dive in and learn about the tubes and the wires. And so that's a really interesting question because although I interacted with the nurses the most, and there are incredible nurses that I do stay in touch with, it was actually the RT who really was only around intensely for the first two days while Tate was intubated.
1: Right. But that was the person that opened up that window for you to feel comfortable Mm -hmm. to learn more about what was going on.
0: Yeah. Yeah, exactly. The next big thing, I think, um, is really learning the routine of the NICU, um, because I know for us, we ended up really... um, kind of planning our entire day around that. So figuring out when are rounds and rounds are when that whole team that Anna just talked about, they come in and they assess your baby and they learn about how your baby did the night before or that day. And they talk about any of the changes that need to be made. Um, knowing when specific care times are and do those change throughout the day or depending on how your baby's doing. Um, even things like, how do you check in when you get to the NICU? Who do you give your breast milk to? Are you able to go and pump? Can you pump it certain times? Um, can you see your baby from the NICVU monitors, so the monitors that attach to uh, your phone? Can you call and get updates? Really just learning those things that might seem small, but really just figuring out, okay, how does the NICU operate? When am I going to best be able to settle in and, and bond with my baby? When can I ask those questions?
1: Right. And I think that there's a there's a difference in learning the routines of your baby and your nurse and what you're going to be doing to interact with your baby. That's one type of routine. And then the other type mm-hmm. of routine is how are you getting information from your physicians? So Yes. And, and I think what's difficult for doing a podcast is that every unit functions different, differently. So each unit that I round in, we round at different times. So if you're in our level four unit, we walk around first thing in the morning between 8 and 10.30. We're always around between 8 and 10.30 and we're always around again between 9 and 11 p.m. But if you're in the graduate side, We're walking around doing work in the morning, but we don't round until the afternoon. So even within Mm. our own NICU, there are different routines for different types of babies. And you'll find if you're at a community hospital versus a teaching hospital, a level two versus a level three, there are going to be different routines, but whatever hospital you're at will have a routine of some sort.
0: Yeah. And I think just needing to be able to be adaptable because our rounds, um, they they basically started at one end of the the NICU and worked their way to the next end and we would move. So we were in Bay 1 and then we were in Bay 3 and then 4 and then 7 and then 8. So learning and making sure that you were kind of aware of, okay, the rounds time is going to change because now we're further down in the bays. And so really just for me, it was so important to be at those rounds. 100%. I never missed one with either of my kids. And so just knowing, and that's what worked for us and our family. And so for me, it was so important to stay up kind of up to date on when those times would be and, and how the ebbs and the flows of the Nikki were changing.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Okay. Number three, So we're going to move on to number three. So number three is boundaries and communication. And Mm. I I think that this is something that we don't necessarily think about. But when you have a baby, everybody wants updates. Grandmas, aunties, uncles, friends, neighbors, everybody wants an update. And so when you have a baby in the NICU, it's really important to establish who are you going to allow to come in the unit. Right now with COVID, nobody can come in. So that actually makes it pretty easy. Not happy, but easy. Whereas in non-COVID times, are grandparents allowed? Are friends allowed? Are you going to have friends come? Do you want your parents around? Do you want your parents there for rounds? Or do you only want them around in the afternoon or when rounds aren't happening so that you can filter that medical information? And the other part of that is, how are you going to communicate information about your baby to all these interested parties who just really want to know Mm -hmm. how things are going? Are you going to use social media? Are you not going to use social media? Do you have a web page? Are you going to text people? Does all the communication go through dad because mom had a C-section? Or does all the communication go through mom because dad is back at work full time? How do you want to get that news from the NICU. So if you have a really tiny, really sick baby and you end up getting bad news, do you want to make sure both of you are there at the time, same time, or how are you going to handle those communication and boundary type issues?
0: Yeah. And I think that's so important. I think that communication is probably one of the hardest things being the parent, like being a parent of a NICU baby and One thing I want to add here, because this was not something that I did during our stay with Tate, but it was something that my husband and I talked about and we hashed out while we were um, preparing to be in the NICU with Reese and it made our stay so completely different is that you can change your mind at any point with your boundaries. So, you know, maybe one day you feel really good and and things are looking good with your baby and you invite somebody to come in and, and to see them you are allowed to cancel those plans and you're allowed to be selfish and you are allowed to make those decisions without feeling guilty. You know, maybe you don't want your parents to come one day. That's okay. And having that open communication with your partner and with your friends and family, I think is so important because there were actually a number of times with Tate when we almost felt like we had to have people or we had to say yes. And it ended up causing A lot of stress on us or on me and and it felt like you know we only had x amount of hours in the day of quiet time with him and so bringing people in I felt just so overwhelmed and so it was a completely different experience with Reese when I would gave myself permission to say hey I know we had plans today I'm really not up for it can we reschedule I will let you know when a good time for you to visit is
1: right and I think some parents have the fortitude to do that they feel totally comfortable saying mom today's not the day don't come other parents have really pushy parents really pushy grandparents (laughs) or somebody in their family that just kind of overwhelms the situation and in those situations that's fine if you want if you want those family members to kind of be in the lead and and drive things because it's a comfort to you great If you really want those people to back off, I am more than happy for you to blame that redheaded NICU in the, or that redheaded doctor in the (laughs) NICU in Denver. She told me that grandparents can only come once a week or only come twice a week. You can put that on us. We are there to support you. What you think is best for your baby is best for your baby. And I'm not going to make decisions or judgments on that, but I am available for you to blame me if. You're getting a lot of heat from from other family members. I'm totally I'm totally content to take on that role.
0: Yeah, I love that. I've never even heard that, but I think yeah, I think that's awesome.
1: Yeah. the The other thing that I would say in this kind of boundaries and communication um, number is that parents process differently, and so mm-hmm. a lot of times there can be big stressors between. The parents, mom and dad, mom and mom, dad and dad, or whoever the, the mom and the support person is, um, you process differently. And so one of you may want to be at the bedside 24-7, and that is comforting, and that's helpful, and, and that's good for you. And the other person might really be struggling with coming into the NICU at all. Neither one of you is right or wrong. But you both are having different ways of coping. In the end, I need both parents to be able to come to the NICU to take care of their baby so that you feel comfortable taking your baby home. But that initial mm-hmm. processing, I think it's really hard sometimes. You know, I'll hear, you know, from just from a doctor's standpoint, I'll hear one of them say, well, I'm here, but they're not. Or they're not here. Mm. Or, well, I know she's here all the time, and I just don't think that's good for her. Or, or whatever the case might be. Just remember yep. that you have to communicate with your partner because you're going to process the NICU differently and allow that process to just happen.
0: Yeah, I, oh man. And I've never actually really thought of that, but it's interesting because after having Tate, um, I ended up, sorry, this is a little sidebar. I'll I'll talk quickly here, but um I ended up going to counseling and one of the things that I had a really hard time with in the NICU is that Derek had to keep working. It was it wasn't an option. And so I would sit at the NICU for 12, 15, 17 hours. And he was there for two or three hours when he could, and then him and I would try to have some alone, t- alone time the days that he would come up. And afterwards, I just remember feeling a little bit of resentment, like, well, I just sat there for a month and a half, I didn't leave the kid's bedside, and you got to continue living your life. And so I went to, to counseling to work through that, and really just came to realize that that we just processed the experience completely different and our needs in that time were so different. It didn't make Derek any less than of a parent. He's an incredible dad, but he did what he needed and I did what I needed and it worked. It ended up really working for us. So Right. Yeah. And and you communicated about yeah. it, right? Like you have to talk about exactly. it. Exactly. So number four is that you have the right to have an update from your baby's doctor. And I love that you put this on here because I think that as a mom, um, sometimes you feel like those rounds can go so quickly. And I also felt like, well, my baby isn't the sickest one in here. So I don't want to bother anyone because I know that the neonatologists are really busy. Um, And so sometimes I know that in our first NICU stay, I would shy away from asking questions, or I didn't want to be a pain. But you do have the right, and not just to talk to the nurses, but to talk to the actual actual doctor.
1: Right. And from my standpoint, I love it when parents are present for rounds, because we get to talk about things. But sometimes... Rounds is working rounds, right? Like we need to get around and see all mm-hmm. the babies. And so then I love to come back later in the day to say, hey, did you have any questions? Do you have any looming questions about what's coming up in the next couple of weeks? And, and part of that gives me an idea of where the parents are. If they're not asking questions and they're really, really backed away from their baby, then I know we need to do a ton of teaching and we really need to get the parents more involved with CARES so that they are comfortable. Mm. Versus if I have a parent that's asking me all the baby questions, I know that they're actively thinking about what's going to happen when I take my baby home. I know they're going to make that transition okay because they're actively there. If you don't have questions, great. And oftentimes, once you get through that initial part and you end up in a routine, there's not a ton of questions that come up day to day on your kind of feeding and growing babies. But I just really want to make sure that parents know that we want them to ask questions. And I really hate hearing stories where parents say, well, I never got to talk to my doctor. Um, because you, sh- you should get an update. You're the parents. You should know what's happening.
0: Yeah, Totally. Yeah, I I so agree with that. And as intimidating as it can be, I think that's also just part of really stepping into that advocator role too, right? We are our baby's best advocate. And I think that like the nurses and doctors are so incredible. um, But you also have that maternal bond. And I think that that's really important, important to remember too, like you are also a very important member of the NICU team.
1: Yes, you are a a critical member of the NICU team, which kind of segues right into number five, which is ask questions. Don't be afraid to ask questions. We want to know that you know what's going on with your baby. And there's a difference between doctor worry and mama worry, right? So as a Mm -hmm. doctor, I can see medically where does your baby fall on a scale of really healthy to really sick. And as a mama, that scale isn't the same as what a neonatologist scale is. And so if you're really worrying about something that I can put your mind at ease, yeah, I'm just really not worried about that today. This is normal for all preemies. You can let that go. Or the opposite is true too. I'm really worried about your baby and I don't think you're hearing me, right? So it, you have to ask questions. We ha- we have to be on the same page about your baby.
0: Yeah, yeah, that is so true. Those worries are so different. So number six is kangaroo care. And for anyone who doesn't know what kangaroo care is, it's essentially just having that skin-to-skin contact. Um, one thing with premature babies, or from my experience at least, is I didn't get any kangaroo care with either of them because they needed that extra attention as soon as they were born, and then they were quickly taken to the NICU. So if you've had a NICU baby, I would say that there's a good chance. Would you say that Anna? that most NICU babies wouldn't necessarily have that first interaction with kangaroo
1: care? So it really depends. Anybody that's less than 32 weeks, it's probably not gonna get skin-to-skin care immediately after delivery we try really hard to make sure we get some interaction with mom before we leave the delivery room. And then the kangaroo care and the skin-to-skin care begins after they've met certain milestones. So for a a big 32-week baby who has in a peripheral IV and is on CPAP, those babies can start doing skin-to-skin right away the first time mom comes down to the unit. But for a really small 23-, 24-, 25-week baby, you're probably not going to be able to do skin-to-skin skin skin to care for at least two weeks. And that's because of the central yeah. access that they have in, the way we're trying to prevent them from having brain bleeds. And so it puts a window between when they're born and when you can do skin-to-skin.
0: Yeah, okay. My experience with both of my kids is I, I ended up having to wait um, a couple of days. And the things that... Um, and I think that this would be quite standard with, um, you know, depending on what Nick you're, you you, were in. And I think it also depends on the nurse's level of confidence too, because with Tate, I was able to hold him when he had the, um, central lines in his belly button and when he was intubated, but with Reese, I wasn't. And the next day, the nurse made the comment that, oh, well, I thought that you would have already held Reese. And I said, no, Um, she was still intubated. And the nurse, nurse just made the comment that your nurse must not have felt comfortable. So I think something that I learned there was that if, like to ask questions, right? If you ask to hold your baby and they say like, not like, no, essentially ask questions. Why? Because maybe there is a more experienced nurse that could step in and help with that um, transition from the baby being in the isolate onto you because If you don't have a NICU baby, a lot of the times, you might not realize this, but a lot of the times they are full of tubes and wires, and it can be really, really tricky to get them out of their isolette so that the monitors and the wires aren't all kind of getting tangled, and to place them on you. Tate was under three pounds when they went to place him on me for the first time because he had lost weight. That's a really small little baby. I mean, not crazy small, but... To maneuver that and for the being a first-time mom and trying to hold a three-pound baby, it, it is overwhelming. So you do need a lot of support. So I think that's where kangaroo care or skin-to-skin with a preemie or a NICU baby is just so wildly different than a full-term baby because you do have all of these additional um, things you need to maneuver around. Right, absolutely. I
1: think the other thing that can be really helpful is... Um asking about skin to skin and kangaroo and holding during rounds because then you are ensuring mm. that everyone is on the same page. So if if the doctor is uncomfortable, it's not going to happen. It's just not. That's that's kind of the buck stops here, right? If the doctor says this baby's too unstable to hold, we're not going to hold. But if you have an inexperienced nurse, but the doctor says it's okay for you to hold, then you have an experienced nurse partner with the inexperienced nurse Mm -hmm. to help her become comfortable. And that way it can be really consistent. Most units have guidelines by which they allow you to hold and don't allow you to hold. And they can vary from Mm. unit to unit. Some units allow you to hold with IVs in the belly button, those umbilical lines, and some units don't. Some units allow you to hold babies when you're on a high frequency ventilator. And some units don't. And some units allow you to do it if your baby's been on that high-frequency ventilator for a long enough period of time type of picture. So it really varies. And so talking about it on rounds so that the doctor and the nurse and the respiratory therapist and the parents are all on the same page about holding gets rid of any miscommunications or bad feelings about, well, my nurse said no, but my... You know, but I learned the next day that I could have That's right. Kind of thing.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. No, I think that's super smart. I wanted to
1: ask you about what you found to be super um, helpful when it came to kangaroo care. So there are some companies out there that make products where you can wear this shirt that has a pouch. Um, But most of the time, I tell parents just to wear either a button-up shirt or a really stretchy tank top, and you just slide the baby in. I also tell dads to stop manscaping because there's nothing worse than laying against a really prickly chest as a two pound baby. So for the for right. the moms that are listening or the dads that are listening, tell the dads not to shave their chest when they are doing their kangaroo care. Or even we've had some moms yeah. that have had piercings. Um in their chest area and so those really were problematic and one of the moms went and had her piercings removed because the baby could not snuggle without laying on one of the piercings
0: yeah I (laughs) so I would say like a stretchy tank top for sure um I am the mom that I had no shame. I was like there to do my job as a mom, gave my babies whatever they needed. So I would just like awkwardly stand in the corner and you know, like the yellow gowns that like our NICU had yellow gowns that we could wear or like that nurses would gear up with. You're probably cringing at my my description of those because, but if you're a NICU mom, you probably know what I mean. Yeah,
1: that's um, the yellow
0: gown. I would just, Yeah, that's right. I would just like hold one over me and I'd slip my shirt right off and then just have my yellow gown on. Yeah. perfect. And I would just hold the, yeah, hold my kids that way. And I think that like that all just kind of ties into like, if you're not comfortable with that, don't do it. But I also think that moms need to know that like, this is home for you. Like you get to do what makes you feel comfortable within reason, of course, but I pumped bedside, I would take my shirt off and, and do that really quickly. And you know what, even if there was dads in there, I always just had the mindset that you know what, we're all in this together. Your wife or your girlfriend is soon going to be trying to breastfeed a two pound baby for the first time. And there's just there was just this level of respect. And so I would yeah, I would just like quickly slip my shirt off and wrap up in the yellow, The yellow um, gown, and then they would always put like the heated blankets, and then I would just kind of look, probably look like a straight jacket. I would just pull my yellow gown on both sides of me up, and then I would pit in in for a few hours and snuggle my kids that way. (laughs) Yeah, no, well, and I think I think it helps for
1: moms to hear you say that because I mean, I work in a NICU, I live in the NICU, I see moms. And I see mom's chests and I see mom's breasts and I see babies that are snuggled in with mom all the time. And it's just yeah. normal in the NICU. It It's kind of, it's just normal. It, it doesn't mean anything.
0: Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I know. Exactly. And I, I always said to Derek, like, I just loved that, you know, he would do the same thing if he saw a mom who was getting a small baby or getting her baby out You just don't watch. You just let them get settled. Or if you know that they're going to start trying to breastfeed, Derek would sometimes just step out and go and get a coffee so that he made that mom feel more comfortable. And I think that um, I would say for the most part, we never, ever felt uncomfortable. But, yeah, just remembering if you're the mom that, like, this is your baby and you're allowed to do what works best for you, too. Right. It just it is what it is there. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah,
1: absolutely. Okay, so let's move on to number seven right yeah so yeah number seven number seven so this one kind of is a big one um we mentioned at the beginning that about half of babies in the NICU are preterm and half of babies in the NICU are term and so there's a ton of reasons why babies get admitted to the NICU but the requirements for going home are really very very clear And they can vary a little bit depending on how sick your baby is. So we're just going to kind of go down the big three. So the first one is that your baby has to be able to hold their temperature in an open crib. So you can no longer need either the radiant warmer heat or the box, the isolate. And usually that happens between 1,800 grams and 2 kilos or four pounds to five pounds, depending on how you wanna think about it. But that's usually the place where babies can hold their temperature. So that's the first requirement. The second requirement is that you have to have safe breathing. And so for the majority of babies, this means that they are comfortable breathing in room air, not having any desaturations where their oxygen drips down. And not having any heart rate drops or bradycardias or braddies, as you call them in Canada. <laughs>
0: yeah, um, Canadian at, lingo.
1: <laughs> Canadian lingo. So no apnea, no bradycardia, no desaturations, and breathing comfortably in room air. Now, every unit's going to be slightly different. We do five days of a brady countdown. Other places do 48 mm. hours. Some places do seven days. Some places do something called a pneumogram, where they actually... Put leads on your baby and test it. Um, So it's all very different. I put this in the category of safe breathing because for some babies that either live at altitude or who have bad chronic lung disease of prematurity or have an airway obstruction, they may need to go home with oxygen or with oxygen and a monitor or with a trach or with oxygen and a trach and a vent. And so safe Mm -hmm. breathing is that category, right? So that encompasses a way to keep your airway safe and breathe safely. And then the third is safe feeding. And so again, the majority of babies are going to go home eating everything by mouth, a combination of breast and bottle feeding, maybe with some formula for extra calories um, and gaining weight, right? So they have to be able to eat and gain weight. But for a small percentage of babies, really this is just safe feeding. So if your baby Mm -hmm. can't eat everything, or your baby has a um, chromosomal defect, or some sort of um, disease process that we're gonna do comfort care, or your baby has something that makes it so that they can't eat everything, we may go home with either an NG tube, which is the tube that goes in the nose down into the stomach, Or if we think it's going to be more long-term, they go home with a G-tube, which is the little G-button, surgically placed button. So that kind of all is in safe feeding. So temperature stability, Mm -hmm. safe breathing, safe feeding.
0: Do you guys use, um, like, the houses? Do you know what I'm saying when I... I have no idea what you're talking about. No. So when my kids were in the NICU, and I know in the NICU in Saskatoon, on every bed like every isolator crib they have a little um picture of a house and on that house it has the five categories and once your baby so it's um like the temperature the breathing the um weight gain the feeding and the heart and so those are all the five categories and then once so let's say once your baby can regulate their temperature then and they've they're good, like in the clear for that, you get a sticker. And so it's really cool. It's just a visual way for the parents to kind of see that like, oh, okay, we need one more sticker until we get to go home is is the kind of meaning behind it. Right. And I think
1: every unit has their own type of thing with that. So you guys had the houses. Some units have like a checklist that hangs at the bedside and you check off the things. Mm that have to happen before you go home. Some units have roadmaps. And so it's kind of like um, you're playing Candyland or Life or Monopoly or whatever. And so it's like a little sidewalk with little boxes. And so... You know, depending on how old your baby is, depends on where your baby starts on that sidewalk. So if you have a baby that's really small and intubated and in plastic wrap because they're 500 grams or one pound at birth, they start at the very beginning of the sidewalk. And then you just mark off, you know, you kind of move along the road. And the very last step is that you get to go home. So it's like this roadmap to discharge. So every unit has something like that, but it can sometimes be a little bit different
0: yeah that's cute i remember so once we left and we got home from the NICU um you really do come home with like a box full of stuff we had you know like all of their milestone cards that that the nurses made and his name tag and all that stuff for tate and i remember we got home and derek's like we don't have the house like we don't have the house and i'm like well no derek those stay in the unit and so when we got in the NICU with reese he's like Like I am taking this house home like I love this thing you know every day when he would get there the days that he came he would take a picture of it because for him he was just so visual that that just really kept him motivated and on track and so we're literally about to be discharged with Reese after being there for weeks and he says to the nurse he's like how much do you like us. And she's like, what do you mean? And he's like, can we take this house home? And she's like, well, no, these generally stay here. He's like, I know they generally do, but like, can we take it home? We've been here twice. And she's like, no, like these stay here. So (laughs) that was always his thing. He just really wanted this house at home. I'm like, I could draw you one. Yeah. Or take a photocopy (laughs) of it. it. Yeah. (laughs) Right. Yeah. 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 So moving on to number eight. And I think that this is such a great one is the whole concept of like journaling and documenting. So whether that's taking notes or taking photos, um, any of those like major milestones that you're writing down or the, you know, the small milestones for me, it was so helpful. I took, I kind of kept a journal in my phone because I didn't necessarily bring a journal back and forth to the NICU with me, but every day after rounds, I would sit and type in kind of how Tate was doing and if there was progress or if we took a step back and what that looked like. And for me, it really just helped me to process what was happening. Um, We took pictures all the time. One thing that I really encourage you to do, moms, like now there's so many cute ways to like take your monthly photos Um, obviously this might range from NICU to NICU, but ours was good to let us bring in like the little card that said one month and two months. And so at those milestones, we took those pictures because it was just a, it was a really nice way of still being able to document. Um, but I also always tell people that if you have a friend or a family member going through the NICU, get them a little journal with a cute pen. That's a great gift because every NICU mom will end up using it. Right. I think that's so true. It, and it doesn't matter
1: how you do that journaling. So I've had moms who bought preemie-specific journals that had prompts like mm. gestational age, how many days old, what the weight is, this is the vent support, this is whatever, and here's what the plan is. So very specifically geared towards preemies. I've had other moms do just total creative, more like doodling and coloring with making some notes as mm-hmm. the way that they processed some moms use social media. Like that, that kind of goes back to our yeah. communication plan. So how much are you going to communicate? Well, if you're willing to communicate everything, you can use social media or Facebook as your this is what happened today kind of summary and that can that can be your be your thing. One yeah. thing that I really like is I had a mom who had her baby in the NICU for like 102 days and she made a wow. picture book. That was 102 pictures and the very first picture was the first picture that was ever taken and the very last picture was the parents standing on the steps with their baby walking in their house and they picked the best picture from every day of the nicu and so a lot of them were like big milestones so this is the day that she got extubated this is the day that she got held for the first time This is the day that dad held, and this was the first bottle, and this is the first breastfeeding. So some of those major milestones, but the other pictures, they just show the change because babies change so much from day one Mm -hmm. to whatever day they go home that you're not taking home the same baby. A lot of maturing has taken place. And that picture a day idea, I think was really, really special and really fun to look at. Because if you're anything like me, you have 20,000 pictures on your phone of your children and yeah. <laughs> nobody wants to see 20,000 pictures of your children other than you, but they do want to see that story. And so that yeah. photo album is a way to do that.
0: And how special is that for that child once they get a little bit older to be able to visually see, oh, here is my NICU journey. I right. think that's such a good idea.
1: No, I think it's If we end great. up there
0: with a third, that's what I'll do. <laughs>
1: Okay, if you end up there with a third, <laughs> on I'll do that for you.
0: <laughs> yeah, that's right.
1: Yeah. Okay, so that brings us to number nine, which is gratitude. And so anybody that's listened to my podcast before knows that I'm really big on gratitude and that your outlook on life can really reflect how things are going for you. That's not to say that things aren't hard, but within those hard mm-hmm. days trying to find one thing that you're grateful for and some days that is really really hard in the NICU I have been there standing next to parents where I'm like man I don't know what I could find today to be grateful for but you know actually I I can I'm standing here next to you while you're holding your baby's hand and somebody took a picture of that that is something to be grateful for. Mm -hmm. Um, So trying to find those little moments of gratitude within this kind of overwhelming and scary ride and only living through bad things once. So yeah, we know things can happen, but let's live through that when it happens, not every day up until it may or may not happen. And I, I like the idea of taking a lot of pictures because even if you can't remember something that you're grateful for at the end of the day, You can flip back through your pictures and find one Mm -hmm. picture that was a moment of time that was good.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I love that. And I've been there where it feels literally like your entire world is crashing down and, and being able to see one good thing feels impossible. But I so agree with you that I think that regardless of any situation that anyone is ever going through, I think that there are always good things there are always good things. So I do, I think that it's so important. And that was something that I did every morning. Um, when I was in the NICU with Reese was I would wake up and I would think of one thing that I was grateful for that day. And maybe one day it was just that I was sleeping in a bed. Maybe the next day it was that, you know, I got to see Tate that day, my, my two year old at the time who I just missed so much. But yeah, I think that, especially if you're doing it right when you wake up, I always just found that it just kind of helped me take a breath and remember where we were um, and then just kind of, kind of start our day that way.
1: Yeah. I remember when Lincoln was in the hospital in March, um, the worst day was Wednesday to Thursday. Like that, like I have vivid memories of how bad that day was, but even on that worst day where I found out his diagnosis, where they were, coming in to evaluate him for being intubated where you know things were just not going the direction we wanted it to go one of my friends brought me a six pack of diet coke and another friend brought me dinner and they were my friends who were my doctor friends who know that I don't drink coffee Mm -hmm. that I drink diet coke and who know that hospital food is terrible like even when they try to make it good it's still the same thing over and over and they they brought me something and That was what I could be grateful for that day. There wasn't anything medical Mm -hmm. I could be grateful for, but I could be grateful that there were people around me who were supporting me. So sometimes you have to look a little bit past the immediate NICU situation or the immediate hospital situation and look at, oh, these are the people that are supporting me.
0: And I think that also kind of flows into number 10, which is just accepting help. And when I wrote this one on here, I'm like, eh, cliche, gross. But I really do, I really do mean it because my experience from Tate, who was in the NICU in 2016, to Reese, who was in the NICU in 2019, it was so differently mentally. And I think it was because I was forced to accept help with when I was in the NICU with Reese, because I had a two-year-old at home that I had to take care of somehow. And even if it's little things, even if you don't have other children, if somebody asks you, you know... And one thing is that a lot of times when you're in the NICU and people don't know how to act, they say, oh, well, or they don't know how to support you, I should say. They'll say, oh, well, let me know if you need anything. It is so easy. It is like, you know, first nature just to say, oh, yeah, we're good. Thank you. Those are the times that say, you know, it would be really helpful if you could just make a lasagna and drop it off at my mom's house so that she can put it in my freezer. Like, that would mean the world to us. Or maybe it's, yeah, you know what, if you would be able to drop Tate off at daycare and then just have him for a play date after daycare while Derek is in with me and Reese, that would be perfect. Or maybe it's, yeah, you know, if you could just go and, like, wash our floors before we get home, that would be so helpful. So really just accepting that help, but then taking a little bit of control and just delegating what you need so that people, because people want to help. If they're offering it, they want to help, right? And so I think that it's really just letting them know that like, yes, this is specifically what you can do for me. Right. And I think from a
1: support person standpoint, whether you have a baby in the NICU or you have grandparents that are sick or you just had a new baby or something else in your life that happened those of us that are asking if we can do something to help need to change what we say mm-hmm. instead of saying yeah. is there anything you need okay I, I, I'm always gonna say no I don't need anything instead exactly. say hey I'm gonna come pick Tate up and take him to preschool, and then I'll watch him for a couple hours afterwards. I need to be done by three. Do you think you could pick him up by three? And you just—that's what I'm gonna exactly. do. Exactly. And and I don't give you—I yeah. don't give you the burden of asking for something, and I'm offering what I can do. Or yeah, I drove by Chick Fil A and I dropped it off on your patio. Or yeah, I went and yeah. picked up some apples and I put them on your porch or whatever it is don't ask, hey, do you need help? Just do something. Exactly. Yeah, I know.
0: I so agree with that. Because if what you're doing ends up being an inconvenience, I can promise you, they will let you know that. Right? Like, but yeah, I think that just like getting into action and doing it and like delegating what you need done. People know that you are in a really hard time. And they know that you love them and care about them. But off or kind of delegating those jobs and accepting that help is going to make your NICU stay truly so much easier.
1: Yeah. I remember um, somebody dropped off Easter baskets for my kids at Easter because that was right when oh. Lincoln was getting out of the hospital. And, you know, they, they didn't ask, what do you need? They just said, we took care of your Easter baskets. They will be arriving at your house on this day. That's taken care of. And had they not done that, we would not have had Easter. We we were yeah. under quarantine. We weren't leaving the house. There was nothing I could do. I was completely overwhelmed. And it, I mean, like, I almost cry when I think about it because Yeah. I didn't have to ask. Somebody just knew, hey, I bet she's not going to have time to deal with Easter. Let me just give her something that she can do for her kids. And they took care of my whole family. And that was yeah. so wonderful and so helpful. And I... I doubt I will ever forget that. And now when I know somebody else who's in that same situation, well, I'm going to get them an Easter basket because. Exactly. They, somebody got it for me and it made all the difference in the world.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Well, I hope that if you're listening to this, whether you are currently in the NICU or if you end up being in the NICU or like I said earlier, if you know someone who is going through the NICU, we really hope that these 10 things just kind of help to give you a little bit of insight into how the NICU works, how how you can support yourself or how you can kind of manage to get through it on uh, maybe a more positive note um, or you know how to support that person that is going through it. Yeah,
1: it was absolutely lovely talking through all these ten things with you. And just know that both Taryn and I, on the Messy Mama podcast and on the Mighty Littles podcast, we're both we're both here for you, mamas.
0: You keep saying it wrong. No, podcast. <laughs>